welcome to the Hublic Sphere. Welcome to the third episode of our podcast. It is also the last episode of 2020. In this episode, I come at our theme, Modalities of Power, from a slightly different angle. We reread books for all sorts of reasons. My guest today, Dr. Alison Waller, describes the books of our childhood as powerful talisman, objects and stories that have the potential to forge a lifelong relationship with reading. And in a year when, for me at least, the passage of time has felt like it's been turned on its head, it seemed appropriate to think about the power, or powers, of returning, of going back to the familiar, or perhaps to something that was once familiar, but is now a faded memory. Alison took the time to share her research on rereading childhood books with me, and on a wet November morning, we sat down to talk about the powerful experience of returning to books from our past. Alison, thank you so much for joining us today. And I suppose let's start off, maybe do you want to introduce yourself? Um, Who are you? What do you do? Thank you. It's great to be here on the Public Sphere. Uh, My name is Alison Waller. And I'm a reader in children's literature at the University of Roehampton in London. And I suppose I spend a lot of my time teaching children's literature. I'm very lucky in that respect. I teach a lot on our master's programme. We have two programmes, actually, a distance learning one and an on-campus one. And I love that teaching. I get the chance to dabble in all my favourite parts of children's literature. Uh, I look at theory. I teach young adult fiction. Um, I do some work around um, memory as well, which is another one of my interests. And the MA students are so enthusiastic. They come from all walks of life. They often come back to studying after a long time away from university life, and they are so enthusiastic. So it's one of my favourite bits of the job. I teach undergraduate as well, and uh, I have a a number of PhD students. So teaching takes up a lot of my time. Um, I also have some research projects and writing projects, which I think we're going to talk a little bit more about. Um, One of the things I have just started doing, I've just launched a journal um, on young adult fiction. It's called the International Journal of Young Adult Literature. uh, And that is a chance for scholars working in young adult literature, YA literature, to have a home for their academic work. So I'm really excited about that project. And I've also been doing some work with schools recently Uh, on a project called Ways to be Ordinary, which again, I think we're going to talk a little bit about later. So I have a very varied work and um, uh, I really enjoy everything I do. I think um, it's brilliant that, you you know, your your work is so varied. I think it really speaks to what children's literature is is like as a field, really. Um, It encompasses so much. But I suppose maybe what what got you, first of all, what got you into children's literature studies? But maybe as well, what what is children's literature studies? Because I think it's maybe because we are a relatively speaking quite new field so so what what is this world where we talk about young adult fiction and books of childhood sure yes it's an interesting question because i actually came into children's literature studies through a more conventional english literature degree originally and uh, i was you know fascinated by books from a child uh, into my adulthood, always wanted to work with books in any way I could. So I studied English literature, but one of the modules I took was on children's literature and language. And um, it just fascinated me. It was something I'd never thought about that you could actually use some of these tools and techniques that I'd been learning about literary studies and approach books from your childhood or books that were being published for children. Really opened my eyes to not just the fact that there's this whole world of children's literature that many people don't realise you can study in that way, but also that it opens up different kinds of questions, um, different kinds of intellectual uh, investigations. So children's literature studies is, is really like any branch of literary studies in that it is both broad and often interdisciplinary. So children's literature covers a very wide range of areas from, you know, books, uh, novels, plays and poetry, as you might expect, but also it expands into children's culture more generally. So children's literature scholars will often find themselves looking at film, gaming, toys, other areas that sort of are cognate to what we would 
often think of as pure literature. But the same kinds of questions apply with children's as to any other literature. We're interested in the literary qualities and aspects of those texts. We're interested in the aesthetics and the style of those books, but also the history and the cultural resonance and implications of the publication of books for children. Uh, also the economic, I think, of how uh, literature for children has has been introduced over time and has a commercial aspect to it. What's interesting about children's literature studies is it very much introduces new questions though about audience because it's defined by its audience. Children's literature is for children. We then have to start asking, well, what are the, what is that audience like? How do we um, how do we construct that audience? How does that audience actually act and respond? to the books it's given. And that's what makes it very exciting because we open up those questions about real readers um, and implied readers and have to get to the, the nub of that, that aspect of literary studies, which some conventional areas of, of literature perhaps don't touch on quite so much. Well, yeah, of course, because we do, as a field, still uh, have to come up against this question of, of what is children's literature. It's um, a kind of uh, unfortunate part of any PhD's life you can't not engage with that question um, and I think it's relevant now to your own study on memory of course that you preface that from the beginning with and I think these are your words an assumption that the books encountered in childhood have an intrinsic value that they're not lesser than or less complex because they were written for a child audience and I think that's really interesting that you begin your, your research with that um, and I suppose because you said earlier that you you work on memory and that's of course the very heart of what we're talking about today. So why rereading? What first got you into the idea of thinking about the return to books, that idea of books that follow us throughout our lifetime? There's two answers to that question, I think. The first is very personal and the second is more academic and, and theoretical. The personal answer relates to my own reading history and the fact that I was a, a, an avid reader as a child, you know, one of those children who never goes anywhere without a book in their pocket. I remember even going to a a play that my sister was starring in the local school and I would just be reading all the way through it. So uh, uh, books were a huge part of my life. I know that's not the case for, for every individual, but I think books are on the whole, in our culture anyway, still supposed to be part of, of a child's life, even if access to, to actual books or actual literature doesn't necessarily get equally distributed. But books are a big part of children's life. And, um, and so from a personal perspective, I was always interested in what kind of reader I had been as a child and why that might still affect me as I went through university life, did my PhD and moved into um, real adulthood, if you like, into my job. Uh, undergraduate degree, as I said, involved uh, a module on children's literature. And I was so kind of struck by that that I went on to study my um, doctoral uh, my doctoral work was on teenage fiction because that was the kind of area that I was really bound to as a kid. You know, it was really in my teenage years that I became this literary figure. You know, somebody I, I just thought this is it. This is what I want to do with my life. I want to be reading books like this as long as I can. And and so when I started doing my PhD, I realised that some of the books I was looking at because uh, I was um, studying the the sort of development of teenage fiction through the seventies and eighties. Many of the books I was studying were books I had encountered myself when I was twelve, thirteen, fourteen. And I found myself having to negotiate that relationship between wanting to look at the books in a a distanced and scholarly manner, but also having these emotional connections to them and finding it great fun to go back and look at some of these books, or sometimes quite disturbing because they weren't exactly as I remembered them. Uh, and so that kind of stuck in my head. It wasn't part of my PhD to be thinking about memories of childhood reading, but it was something that I kept coming back to um, afterwards. So that's the kind of personal journey through to my interest in memory, that the more academic and, and theoretical trajectory is down to the fact that I think a lot of work on reading, uh, and I'm interested in reading studies, a lot of research into reading falls into two camps. One is childhood reading, and that very often falls into the camp of literacy studies. So thinking about how children learn to read, and then how they decode, and what meaning they get out of books, often in, in the classroom. And that's a really important part of children's literature studies. Of course, it is part of the, um, the, the aspects that make it unique and that it has these connections to educational theory as well. And then the other camp on reading studies ignores children altogether. Um, so reading studies in terms of reader response or um, narratology, 
just considers the reader to be this abstract adult ideal figure. Um, and you might think that that, that figure is often perhaps um, considered to be male and, and white and uh, educated in some way. So that's obviously changed a little in the last 20 or 30 years, but there is still an assumption that reading studies on that side of the fence are about adult reading, about fully formed reading, about a critically trained reader and how that reader in, in, um, encounters texts in time. So I was really concerned about this division and thought that there was work to be done to bring those two aspects together in some way and not to separate childhood and adulthood in such a distinct manner. Um, there's been some amazing um, theoretical work come out recently and think in particular of um, work by um, Gubar on kinship theory um, this notion that childhood and adulthood are not necessarily two separate states or they don't have to be conceived in that way. They can be seen as integrated parts of a whole with more in common than they have distinct from each other. So as adults, we might think of our childhood selves as still part of who we are, just at a different stage of life. And that kinship theory, again, influenced me in thinking about reading because I don't think reading has to be divided into these two camps, into literacy and learning in childhood, and then fully fledged um, literary uh, encounters in adulthood. And of course, memory comes into this, um, this question, because as soon as you start as an adult looking back to a childhood version of yourself and that childhood reading, you have to um, tackle the concept of memory, which itself is quite unstable, uh, unstable and, and very interesting for that reason. So yes, there's, there's two ways into the, the interest I had in rereading. One was the personal journey I took in becoming a reader and being fascinated by that process. And the second was this sort of theoretical stance that I was hoping to take to bridge the different uh, traditions of reading studies. I think um, I'm so struck by the role of the personal because it's something that sometimes I think we're, we're discouraged in a way I think sometimes as academics to focus on that personal and with, with good reason but of course there is often I think for maybe for us as people who look at children's books I I have a copy of I work on historical fiction and I have a copy of Goodnight Mr. Tom that has is a testament that to that kind of non-linear aging process the idea that aging doesn't just happen in one straight line. I have notes on it from when I was 13 and I have notes on it from when I was 24. And it's a really interesting document, kind of this mixture of this one book that's come with me over that, that decade. So how did you go about then? So how does one go about, you? you're, you're interested in, in memory and rereading, but how do you go about doing such a study? What's the method? So I took a couple of different approaches. I mean, it's interesting what you're saying about the personal approach, because probably my first forays into this research were very much autoethnography. So looking at my own reading experiences. So one of those books I was talking about that came up in my PhD study uh, was Robert Cormier's Fade from 1988, which is one of his slightly lesser well-known books, which I, I think it's a fascinating novel for many reasons. It's about a boy who becomes invisible and has a sort of special power of invisibility that allows him to see the various horrendous things that are actually going on in his community. And I wrote about that in terms of its fantastic realist qualities for my thesis. But I also remembered very strongly uh, on rereading that book that I loved the idea of becoming invisible when I read it. And I put myself into that position in my imagination and started to consider what it would be like and what I would find out if I was invisible wandering around my home and community. And it, it's quite an uncomfortable book in many ways because it has quite explicit episodes dealing with sex and abuse and incest and all kinds of things but for me that was a, again an imaginative leap that I could imagine that things like that might be going on and I have to say they weren't in my home and, and community as far as I know but it, it provided a way in to sort of thinking about myself and the world around me at that time so I did some work on that double layer of academic critical analysis and personal uh, introspection on the book and I wrote a, an article about that. So I started perhaps with only my own experience as a guide. Um, and then I realized some other critics were doing similar things um, sort of from the nineties onwards and personal criticism, I think really kind of got a boost partly from feminist theory, which definitely moved the political into the personal and began to write very much from the self and an interest in autobiographical works and all of that kind of development in the 80s and 90s really helped to, to shift some focus onto the personal. 
in the academic writing world. But children's literature perhaps didn't do that quite so much for a while. But then critics did start, there was a few critics doing that kind of work, reflecting on the books that they remembered from childhood and interrogating exactly what it meant to go back to those books and see them in this new way as critics. So I, I reflected a little bit on what was going on around me in that academic field. Um, and then two other sources I used were published works um, of children's authors mostly, uh, because I had to contain things. And also I figured that children's authors have some of the most interesting things to say about reading and childhood reading. So I was looking at biographies of um, childhood author, children's authors in published work, but I also wanted to speak to readers uh, in a more general sense. So I did some interview work with uh, real readers, ordinary readers, as they're known, the general reader, um, drawn mostly from a, a slightly older demographic. So this was for practical reasons, mostly in that older people turn out to have a lot more time and energy to um, contribute to research projects. So volunteers tended to be at the older end of the spectrum, um, but they were very, very valuable voices there. So not people who had been trained to read, not people who had, had spent their whole life thinking about children's books, but people who had still been readers in childhood and were willing to talk to me about how that had inflected their lives and what it meant to them to go back and remember and reread. So that work I did with, with real readers involved asking them generally about their childhood reading and doing some sort of general reminiscence work with them but then also setting up a small experiment where they would recall a book that they'd read in childhood but had not returned to since they were young and asking them to remember as much as they could about that book and then go back and reread it and make notes as they were going and returned for another conversation about that experience of remembering. So those voices also fed into my research and it was a, a combination of reflection on my own practice, analysis of published memoirs, and uh, exploration of these interviews and rereading experiments that formed the basis of my book. Well, I guess what really comes out then is the idea of, of reading as a process, particularly with the, um, the interview method with real readers, for want of a better word. And you, come, you use this term, the, the lifelong reading act, which I love. And could you, could you explain a little bit what, what, what you mean by that? It's a term I use knowing that um, it, it intersects with other terminology. So it intersects with the idea of lifelong reading, which of course has a commonplace meaning of being involved in literary life as you continue to age, not just leaving books behind when you leave school, but continuing to, to read and get excited about books well into old age. So there's lifelong reading. There's also the Reading Act, um, which was introduced first by Louise Rosenblatt, um, as a, a term that focuses in on that individual particular instance of uh, a person encountering a book and all of the specific things that go on in that encounter for that individual. So I sort of brought those two things together, thinking about the Lifelong Reading Act. And it goes back to that problem I saw in the terms childhood and adulthood being so separated out in much of common discourse wanting to bring those together, wanting to see, to map onto the kinship model, to see that different stages of life are much more integrated than that. And also recognizing that reading is not just a moment in time. It doesn't just involve a simple activity in a classroom or reading a novel to pass the time during lockdown. These are instances of reading, but they're not the whole thing. For me, reading is very much an act that unfolds over time. And not just the time that is involved in reading that book from cover to cover, which is important, of course, because that has a temporal aspect to it. You start a book, you anticipate what's going to happen, you see things changing sentence by sentence, chapter by chapter, as the plot continues to develop. All of those things are, are crucial and really interesting. But when the cover's closed, that's not the end of the matter. In a very immediate way, you might remember what's gone on in your experience of reading, not just what happens in the book, but what you felt about it and what you were doing simultaneously, where you were reading, whether you were in a bedroom or in a classroom or on a bus or in a hedge, you know, whatever you were doing at the same time. So there's a certain aspect of remembering that happens almost immediately when you finish a book, um, but then that continues. And my argument is that that lifelong reading act continues on and off, you know, intermittently, throughout every stage of life so that books may return to you through involuntary memory 
or they might be prized reading experiences that you you'd consciously come back to over and over to recall and enjoy again. Um, you might reenact some of those reading moments either in childhood play or as an adult, you might sort of have some imaginative journeys that take you on route with some of the favourite characters, for instance. And you might choose to reread or revisit a favourite or interesting or significant book in some way and share that perhaps with other people, whether that's in a formal kind of discussion group or just chit-chatting with your friends. You also probably engage with certain books on a cultural level, particularly books like Tom's Midnight Garden that has had a, lot, a strong cultural life and has been adapted for TV and has been circulated in prizes and so on. So the, the reading isn't just the moment that you are engaged with the words on the page because it's always a matter of um, turning those words in, on the page into something in your head, into the reading space. And that process continues forever, more or less. Of course, some books will fall out of your conscious zone. You know, you won't be remembering books endlessly and always. And you'll be adding books to that Lifelong Reading Act all the time if you're an avid reader. But they can emerge at any time. And they can be then sort of plucked from that that memory uh, space and, and, and worked on, if you like, through imaginative interaction. So for me, the Lifelong Reading Act is something that is that unfolds over time. And that can tell us something a little bit about versions of ourselves from the past as well. Yeah, but I know like one of the most evocative um, passages in your book for me was the description, I think it was um, Penelope Lively's description of coming home from school and getting into bed with chocolate in her book. I just think, oh, you, me, both, Penelope, like that was, it was so powerful in terms of that idea that you're expressing about the book being rooted in space and the material world around you as well. And I think it's important as well, because of course you emphasize that there are books that, um, like the one I reference, which are part of, um, that some of the books that we encounter in our youth are ne not necessarily ones that are, you know, canonical, this idea of they're considered important. I think you use the term paracanon for that. But the idea that some of the books that are most important to us aren't necessarily considered culturally important. Yes, and I use Catherine Stimson's term there, paracanon, to absolutely yeah, explain those books that are significant to individuals but haven't necessarily been canonised or entered into that realm of public discourse so so much and Stimson uses the term to describe what she calls beloved texts whereas I think it's more useful to expand that uh, meaning to mean significant texts because not every book that uh, remains in our memory stays there because we absolutely loved it often books were all have an influence over us in our life because they scared us or because they horrified us, because they made us unhappy, um, because they bored us. I had a, a number of people in my interviews talking about the books that they just found really tedious and really boring. And those hadn't been just dismissed from their, their paracanon. They were still there because they were touchstones for what not to go back to and what not to, to revisit. So for me, paracanons are much broader. They involve any books that have a significant impact on us in some way and that might be negative as well as positive. Childhood reading and indeed childhood is not necessarily a happy time for, for many people or just like other periods of life it has light and dark and I love I thought it was very interesting when you looked at the different kinds of emotions that can be created or traced or accessed through rereading and kind of moving the conversation away from from nostalgia as being the only way that we talk about the return to childhood reading. Um, I know that sometimes when I was speaking to friends about this before the record, there's a slight kind of guilt sometimes associated with the idea that you're kind of copping out by uh, returning to a childhood book or something that you've read throughout your life. Yes, and I'm very keen to move the discussion away from pure nostalgia, which, as you say, has become sort of the, the guiding light for any investigation of going back to childhood books. And nostalgia is all about sort of reclaiming a lost uh, landscape, isn't it? Um, and a lost childhood. So the sense then would be, well, these books are no longer accessible to us as adults. They only point us towards something that can no longer be experienced, that can't be regained. And so nostalgia has a tinge of both um, pleasure, but also that regret. And I'm not sure that is always necessarily what happens when we remember or reread re childhood books. Um, and I was very keen to complicate that um, framework and introduce some other ways of thinking about how adults respond to rereading childhood books, because I think there are other emotions, not just pleasure and regret, 
that can frame our, our experiences of going back. Not least, um, as you say, guilt, which I think is a really crucial and um, fascinating response to going back. And it was very common in some of the interviewees that, that I was speaking to, this sense that, well, guilt that they were going back in the first place, because yes, children's books are seen as something that have to be left behind, that aren't fruitful for adult consumption, but also guilt in more complex ways that they no longer felt the same about those books or that they felt implicated in a different way in reading, for example, something like Enid Blyton's novels. Uh, again, a common memory um, for, for the age group I was looking at was reading uh, Blyton and, and loving her books on the whole. And guilt came, the, came in very often in rereading and recognising some of the limitations of her ideological stance, of her attitude towards gender and race and all of those things that children's literature critics are very familiar with. Um, general readers felt guilt because they, they felt they, they were wrong in not spotting that as child readers. And so I, I wanted to um, allow for different types of response that weren't just framed by pleasure, but that could access some of those more complicated emotional responses about what you were once and what you are now and what the book, what role the book has in shaping both of those versions of yourself. I think it's really interesting that you raised responses say, to examples because you identify three types of readers uh, or three, not perhaps readers, but three ways in which we kind of end up going in at children's books and they engage with this idea of do we want the book to be static and, and be this memorial to a childhood that we now think is lost or do we want to criticize it or and I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about those three ways of rereading absolutely yes I call them rereading attitudes and and, and as you um, suggest there they're not necessarily bound to one reader or one reader is not necessarily bound to one attitude I certainly see different attitudes at play in my own responses at times um, and I used well I, I sort of started with Walter Benjamin's work as an inspiration um, when he talks about remembering as a kind of digging up the past and that led me to thinking about excavation and archaeology and the sorts of terminology that um, circulate around those areas that, that could be useful when thinking about reading and rereading. So my three types draw on kind of archaeological models very sort of roughly because I'm certainly not an expert in, in that area. And they were, they were attempt again to avoid binaries and to avoid the, the judgment value often placed upon different types of adult reader of children's books, whether that is a judgment about whether they are too naive or too critical or whether they're too much um, bound to the child or too much bound to the book. And these are sort of debates that, that go on in children's literature studies. And I was trying to circumvent them a little bit by coming up with three, <laughs> three ways of, uh, or three attitudes towards remembered and reread child books. So the first is, is a restor restorative dance or the restoration, by which I mean the process of looking at the book from the past and recognising that it has a part to play in that past, that it sits within a context of your own reading journey, but that you have moved on or moved away from that and are returning from an, a different kind of perspective. So restoration allows for the original and sort of natural response but also accepts that there are going to be layers of experience and adult perspective that nuance that. Preservation, on the other hand, is, is what you were mentioning earlier, a, really, a real sort of attempt to fix the childhood book and the childhood reading self in a very static way, to memorialise it as something that was there in the past and is no longer to be changed at all. And that can often relate to very positive feelings, you know, the child childhood book is wonderful and we won't go back and change any of that um, feelings, the feelings that we had about it. Or it might be that, oh yes, that, those were silly books. So I definitely have something of the preservationist attitude in me when I think about my reading of the Sweet Valley High books as a teenager, for instance, um, because I'm not sure I really want to challenge my enjoyment of that, those books. I loved them, loved them for giving me all kinds of insights in what I thought adult life would be. Um, but I'm, I'm, as an adult, I recognise that they have their limitations and I'm not sure I really want to change that, um, that feeling I had about them by going back. In fact, I might even tip into conservation, which uh, is the term I use for those adults who refuse to remember or reread in any detail because it's such a dangerous process. You know, you do not want to disturb the past 
And that can be for many reasons, some of them quite dark, actually. And then the third attitude is renovation, uh, which I think is the most common stance for academics, actually, because renovation is about making something new, not necessarily honouring that original or past experience primarily, but actually making something new through revision, through rereading, through critically analysing through finding um, a, a use for that childhood book in the present. So they're, they're sort of overlapping and um, relatively nuanced, I hope, terms. And as I say, you can definitely have more than one stance, depending on which part of your childhood reading you're, you're thinking about. But hopefully they open up discussion and move it beyond a sort of simple good, bad or um, child adult binary. I was thinking about my own rereading about like which of the terms and I think well I think like yourself I think I enact all of those terms but for sure as a as an academic in my work I'm, I'm doing the renovationist work where it's looking at the book anew and looking at the new ideas that I might glean from it as a critic but then I was thinking about something say that has one of the great loves of my life is Shirley Hughes um, and books like Dogger and um, Alfie and Annie Rose and I think perhaps I'm a restorationist when it comes to Shirley Hughes. And I find I can really vividly remember or, well, think I can kind of really vividly feel the way those books made me feel as a small child. But yet as an adult, there's these new layers of being added of an emotional response to the material world that she builds up. So I think I'm a restorationist when it comes to Shirley Hughes, perhaps. Um, If listeners have not looked into Shirley Hughes, do it. She'll change it. Oh, absolutely amazing. Such such emotionally resonant images that she has in her picture books uh, and I think picture books are really interesting um, examples of, of childhood books that can perhaps more obviously have a restorationist aspect to them because they speak on different to different parts of your psyche perhaps I think I mean I'm not you know, not, not an expert in picture books. I'm not an expert in visual imagery, but it feels to me that the visuals alongside a story can tap into different moments of your, your childhood and adulthood engagement with the book in quite a fruitful way. And I mean, restorationist uh, approaches or, or stances are probably where I fall most often because I do treasure and acknowledge and appreciate early responses. And I want to give those versions of myself voice as much as I can but I'm also aware that I have a different job to do now as an academic that involves critically analyzing and reassessing books so I, I, I like to think that I show the, the layers of my um, responses in my work as well. Yeah I think in a, in a way it's, it's probably why I don't think I'll ever stray near Shirley Hughes in my work uh, as a critic because I think it would just be paragraphs of me going oh it's just brilliant which I don't think it's really what's called for and I suppose I mean, we're talking about memory today and what we remember of childhood reading. But of course, and you highlight this, forgetting is a huge part or misremembering. Memory is not stable. It's not static. And I know that from from speaking to people in advance of this episode, particularly my mom, actually, that frustration can be a huge part of returning to childhood books or disappointment in yourself for what you can't recall, whether it's can't remember the the title of a book. Um, did, Did you find that, that misremembering was a big part of your work? Definitely. And it was actually a methodological quirk which I found very interesting that many of the participants in my project that I was talking to yes found it frustrating that they couldn't remember more that they had identified a text that they thought was significant that they knew was part of their power canon in sitting and talking to me about it couldn't necessarily remember much at all often it would just be a sort of feeling about the book not even plot and not even character and the frustration was interesting for two reasons partly because I think that tells us quite a lot about how reading often works for many people that it's not something that does get um, embedded in great detail although many you know many people do I think that we split into two two versions of reading there but it was also interesting because the participants felt guilty about that that problem Um, they felt like they were letting me down by not giving me enough information about their memories of the book and obviously for me it was just really fascinating to hear whatever people recalled and I had to keep reassuring individuals that it didn't matter if they could remember absolutely nothing because that still was of interest to me as a researcher and the gaps and the silences and the, the absences are almost as interesting as what's actually recalled. Perhaps the most interesting thing is those misrememberings, though, where something is recalled, but it turns out to be false when it's tested against the actual book. And this was why I, partly why I wanted to use this experimental format to ask people to go and reread the book, not just 
to get some of the experiences of rereading, but also to allow them to test what they remembered against the reality of the words on the page. Um, and I was trying, I tried to be quite careful not to, to sort of set that as a test. It wasn't that I was testing memory, but it is a chance for us to see what gets retained and how that compares with what actually sits on the page. Um, Margaret Mackey talks about this process in a really interesting way in, in her book, um, One Child Reading, which is a fantastic autobiography about all of her books that she read in childhood that her mother kept in a box. She could access most of them and go back to them. And it's a, an extensive account of her rereading most of the books of her childhood. But she talks about that, that process of forgetting and misremembering as being some of the most interesting aspects of her research. And there, there are lots of examples. Some, some people I spoke to remembered identifying with certain characters. And then when they reread uh, they couldn't understand what they were talking about. You know, why did they like that character as a child? And sometimes that's changing tastes, of course. But I think sometimes it's also the fact that they had been influenced by other phenomena. So one one person I spoke to uh, reread Little Women for me, and she wasn't quite sure of the plot, and she couldn't remember much about the characters. And she'd actually been more influenced, I think, by uh, watching a film adaptation. And also having a, a doll of, uh, I think it was the Amy doll that she had, and sort of projecting a lot on the doll rather than actually referring back to the, the text itself. But other examples were much more explicit about misremembered elements, the whole plot points that were recalled in the imagination, but actually never happened in the book when, when we tested it against rereading. And there's lots of reasons why that might be the case. As I say, sometimes it's to do with having been exposed to different versions of the text in adaptation or kind of popular cultural form. Sometimes it's more psychological than that, that there might be a, a moment in a book that seems really important in childhood that then takes on a life of its own in the Lifelong Reading Act, becomes enhanced and made more dramatic over time in the memory but actually wasn't that exciting in the first instance so i think there's lots of ways that misremembering functions and there's quite a lot more work to be done in that area it's it's tough research because of course forgotten elements are almost impossible to look at because they are by definition not there they are forgotten they are they've sunk in what mackie calls the murk so digging them up is practically impossible because you don't know what you're looking for Misrememberings are easier to check because they they do respond well to that rereading process where you can see where the disparities are between memory and and reality on the page. But I think there's a whole load more research that might be done in that direction, which I think would be very exciting. I agree. I think it's, we, we, there's such a huge judgment attached to remembering or forgetting. But yet, if we can access those gaps, there's some really there's some nuggets in there. And of course, you've applied your work on rereading in a co-creative project working with early Alzheimer's patients to create a kind of a best practice guide for how to do this kind of work in particular settings. How did that come about and how did you find that experience? Oh, it was such a wonderful experience. So the, the project was called Lifelong Reading New Stories. And the idea behind it was to get to grips with this, this question of narrative identity, which is a very strong strand in arts participation work um, particularly with people with memory issues. So I was working with people um, with early stage dementia and narrative identity is seen as a way to help individuals, particularly at later parts of life, to integrate their life histories and to think about themselves and to come to a kind of um, integrated meaning of themselves. And, and some thinkers around this, this kind of life review have talked about lives being a little bit like fictional works themselves that we can make meaning out of. And the important thing to remember, or the important thing that I came to learn was that that doesn't necessarily mean a linear, straightforward, A to B kind of storytelling. In fact, it it can't mean that when we're talking to individuals who have um, early stage dementia or any kind of cognitive ability that allows memory to, to not work in a straightforward way. And in fact, it's probably the case for all of us that our lives don't occur to us um, in that linear way when we look back on them. So I was quite keen to think about stories as slightly more fragmented. And I was very interested, of course, in thinking about childhood reading and childhood stories as a starting point for um, talking about life review, for getting a sense of meaning of the self across time. So that was kind of my theoretical starting point. And I, I had the fortunate um, experience of meeting a woman called Gemma Seltzer, who's a creative writer. 
and we started talking about these ideas and she was very keen to be involved as a creative practitioner. Then we recruited a comic books artist called Wallace Eats and the three of us worked together on a very small scale project to talk to individuals about their early memories of childhood reading, about the sort of stories that seem to have threaded through from childhood books into their lives and to start to build something, a new story out of those experiences. So we worked with a, a day center specializing in early stage dementia. We worked with just two individuals who came together with us to talk about their, their early childhood and some of the stories that they remembered. But then we worked very hard to make sure we were creating new narratives. Um, so that was a creative process, particularly um, Gemma led that in terms of creative writing, coming up with new ways of imagining the past. Uh, while Wallace uh, visualized that for us and, and drew pictures of some of the stories we were telling. And the outcome was a, a book box which really highlighted non-linear aspect of the stories we were telling. So it wasn't a, a book that you would start in childhood and end in the present day. It was a series of loose leaves that could be shuffled through that gave us glimpses of these two individuals, um, important elements of the past linked to stories and books. It was a wonderful project. It was very, very emotionally involving. And um, I'd love to do more of that kind of work. Of course, the problem at the moment is that day centers, care homes, all of the kinds of places where this work is really, really valuable are not very accessible due to COVID restrictions for the foreseeable future. And I'm really hoping that there are ways to open that kind of work up again in, in the near future, because it, it seemed very important to have that intimate kind of, of research happening with people who really valued being able to give voice to their past and to reflect on things like childhood stories in that way. Oh, well, I, I really hope so that there is more room to grow such projects. It's such a beautiful testament to the way that books inform our own imagination and then we inflect our imagination back on those stories and how they come with us as you said in a non-linear way throughout our lives and it sounds like a really special project so I really hope you get to do more and we see where that can go I mean whenever you were discussing the way we remember or rather perhaps re-remember books I was really struck by you referenced the author Judith Carr who wrote The Tiger Who Came to Tea listeners might know or when Hitler's still a pink rabbit who remembered, uh, she passed away last year, um, remembered books in English that she must have originally read in German. And the idea of the, how our memory can change, and those but the stories came with her nonetheless, despite of the, the language change in her life. And I was really struck by that. I thought it was a really lovely, interesting detail. You're now working on a new project, and I know, don't know how much you can tell us about it, but it's working with, with young people. Is that right? That's right. It's, it's quite a new project. It is off the back of funding from the British Academy that was in response to COVID-19. So it's quite a, a rapid response to the, the, the current crisis. Um, and it's about ordinary life and about young adult fiction. So of course, as well as memory and rereading childhood books, my other passion is young adult fiction. I've written a book on YA and I wanted to get back into researching young adult, adult fiction. This seemed like a good opportunity to combine some of my interests in YA and reader studies to actually work with young people and explore what current contemporary YA is doing to help them reflect on their own lives. So the, the premise of the project is that I'll be working with a small cohort of young people from around the country so I've got three locations in London, in the Southwest and in the Northeast, different ages from year nine to year 12. And I'm going to be asking them to read a series of YA novels, young adult fiction by British authors based in the contemporary world as a kind of starting point for discussion about their own lives, about what it means to have an ordinary everyday existence. And obviously that will involve some reflection on what has changed in the, in the past year and what ordinary means in a post-COVID world. So we'll be talking a bit about things like cups of tea and bus journeys and favourite sweets and food and the built environment and listening to music and all the things that make up what I think is an ordinary and everyday British experience, at least, of being a young person. Um, we'll be looking at extracts from certain novels that, that raise those questions 
and hopefully these uh, individual pupils will be able to talk to each other. We're going to be running it as a, a, a digital reading group so individuals can talk to each other across these three different locations to share their experiences, to think about what fictional versions of ordinary, ordinary life look like and how they either reflect or completely show something different to uh, real people's experience today. Yeah, because of course, I mean, you mentioned at the very end of rereading childhood books that for the next, a new the upcoming generation of rereaders, that the, the changes in media and the way that we access literature are going to have a huge impact on how they think about rereading or how they reread. So I think, and that's now even the more amplified from the pandemic and lockdown experience, you know, what there will be certain books that were read during this time that will forever be embedded in this time, but yet also continue on. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out of that project. I hope so. Uh, and part of the, I guess, underlying purpose is a, a bigger study that I'm starting on for a book to really consider what we mean by ordinary and how that intersects with questions of normality, because I want to ensure that those things are kept relatively separate. My sense of what, uh, what the word normal often means in, in common discourse is that it's a sense of fitting in to try and compare oneself to others to, to fit within a sort of typical or normative spectrum of, of ways of being. And it can seem quite prescriptive then to be normal. It's, you have to be normal to fit in with the rest of society. And I think a lot of young people feel the pressure of that, of that expectation. Whereas ordinariness, I don't think has quite such a prescriptive role. It's much more unexceptional. It's about the, the everyday experience, but it's also about common experience. And common can mean all kinds of things. It can mean, you know, not very exciting, but it can also mean shared and communal. So I'm interested in the shared landscapes that shape everyday life and what that means in comparison to trying to fit in with the norm. And I'm hoping that, again, will raise different questions about what it means to be a, a teenager or a, a young person, that it's not necessarily all about fitting in. It can sometimes be about sharing a communal space. Yeah, because, of course, young adult literature has often functioned as that communal space for people who, said, as you said, felt like they didn't fit in. It was part of their own ordinary, if you like. So I think in that sense, it has a very... that's. One of the reasons maybe why the books that we encounter as teenagers have such a strong place in our sense of ourselves. Definitely. And, you know, currently YA is, of course, going through such a boom. It's so exciting as a, a commercial enterprise. There are so many great writers out there. I'm keen to sort of highlight the British YA authors that are getting slightly less critical attention on the whole in YA studies than American writers who get the big blockbusters and uh, have a lot of critical attention. So I'm interested in Patrice Lawrence and Mohammed Khan and Nikesh Shukla, Holly Bourne, some of the slightly more established writers that I've worked on before as well, like Melvin Burgess, giving a, a, a specifically British perspective on YA and the YA experience. Of course, they are all writing from an adult perspective, and this is one of these perennial questions of, of working in children's or YA studies is the the power balance between young and old in terms of production and reception but I think there is um, something interesting anyway to be said about the, the British cohort of writers that are giving a picture of contemporary Britain in their writing that is quite different from the dystopian worlds that have been so popular recently and quite different from the American contexts and um, scenarios that are popular in the blockbuster type of novels that are, you know, turned into films and, and become very well known. I think you're right that those, those contexts do matter because I was just thinking, as you were talking about the British authors who are contributing to fabric of a British teen experience, which is of course in Ireland, we have our own authors who are also doing something very different with our, our own social mores here. I'm thinking about authors like Deirdre Sullivan, who are creating really interesting work that is reflecting an Irish YA culture. So I think it's, it's really important, as you said, to, to look at those contexts as related, but also all doing their own thing in their own ways. For sure. And there's definitely scope for comparative work further down the line as well, which is something just to plug the journal. The International Journal of Young Adult Literature is hoping to encourage is much more global studies of YA, um, both sort of individually in terms of national traditions, but also then some comparative work so that the whole field is opened up much more and moved on really to become a much more mature field of study. Which is so exciting. I mean, I mean, it really speaks to one of the this podcast is we're very much in favor of people working together across areas and 
not just disciplines, but also areas of cultural context as well. There's so many exciting things to be gleaned from that kind of work, I think. Mm-hmm. So I suppose my, my final question to you would be that I think our listeners will now all be so eager to reread or return. And that would you have maybe any tips for somebody embarking on their own rereading experiences, things to, to bear in mind to perhaps enrich or inform that experience? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I think I would recommend spending some time trying to sink back into the past to dig up those books that are worth revisiting or, or reviewing and remembering that those books might not be just the ones that you love. They might not be the ones that have sat on your shelf and come with you as you've moved around the, uh, as an adult. They might be books that are still in the murk of the past, but with a little bit of conscious probing, you might come up with some other books that are worth revisiting. You can use a community of readers to help you discover those books. I think if you are digging around and find something that you can't quite put your finger on, that you know the sort of plot, but you can't remember the title. There's lots of communities of children's literature readers out there that you can tap into to get help to identify and source books. Allow for those feelings that aren't just about love. Allow for those feelings of boredom and fear or frustration. It's all part of the fabric of the past and definitely worth paying attention to. And don't be worried if you can't remember everything or you misremember, because that is in itself a really exciting phenomenon. And I think probably the last thing is to be open, to not judge yourself, not to judge your younger self or your current self for any of the responses that you have to childhood books. Um, It's all part of your lifelong reading self. Well, I think that's such a lovely note to end on to not judge but to open yourself to the many things that rereading and returning to books can bring you so thank you so much Alison for taking the time to speak to us we really appreciate it thank you Siobhan it's been a pleasure so why not take up rereading or If you are already an avid rereader, maybe join a community of rereaders or start your own. And if you can't remember the title of that book or all that you have is the fragments of a front cover, a character or even a particular moment in a story, get in touch with us. You never know what you might find. Thanks again for listening. We will see you in 2021. The Public Sphere is hosted by the Trinity Longroom Hub and is produced by Don Seymour Kloss, Sahar Ahmed, Siobhan Callahan, Elizabeth Foley, Dr. Claire Moriarty, and Dr. Lilith Acadia, with many thanks to Angus O'Loughlin for the jingle. For more information about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can visit our show notes at bit.ly forward slash hosted by the Trinity Longroom website. Thank you for listening.